Hello there, friends, and welcome back to the New Blocks. We're here with episode 22, a numbered episode today, which means we're getting educational. Dr. Kevin is back, and boy, does he have a presentation for you. Today, we're talking about the merge. This is a big one. We've been talking about this episode since we started this podcast, I think, over a year ago. For anyone that's been following Ethereum for years, the better part of a decade, this is something that has been a part of the roadmap forever. The switch from proof of work to proof of stake. Today, we're going to unpack it, go into the nitty gritty, talk about some of the risks, some of the changes, and uh, honestly, some of the excitement. And then we're going to wrap things up by going through a couple of myths. We're going to play Mythbusters today, Kevin. Uh, welcome back to the New Blocks, uh, bud. Always a pleasure. How are you? going on? I've been waiting for this. I had notes that I had to basically just rewrite uh, from last year sometime because they were pretty outdated. And uh, it's really good being back in the studio with you. I like calling our, our work from home setups the studio. You're in the studio. Uh, but I am, yeah. And the merge has been in the cards for Ethereum since the very beginning. I don't know that it was mentioned in the white paper for uh, Ethereum, but it was immediately discussed uh, even before release, uh, uh, even before the network had commenced, people like Vitalik were already talking about like, okay, we're using proof of work, but obviously proof of work is bad for the environment and it's electrically inefficient. What do we say about switching this over to this new concept that's being discussed called proof of stake? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah, it, it's a big one. Um, we'll, we'll try to go through it as quickly as possible without sacrificing quality. Um, per usual, we've got recommendations for starter episodes. There are 21 educational episodes before this. And we say educational, that means it's broken down into a very clear kind of A, B, C, D logical flow with some questions at the end designed to be a digestible, hey, here's blockchain in a nutshell. Uh, the episode about blockchain, the episode about Ethereum, and the episode about consensus, as well as the episode on staking. Those would be the big four that'll give you some foundational knowledge here. And uh, we're going to kind of assume that you've already digested that information to some degree. So we're, we're not going to go super basic. But it is important to understand kind of the fundamentals of what a consensus mechanism is and why it's important. Some of the myths that come along with that. Um, proof of work, as you mentioned, Kevin, it, it was novel, right? It, it served a, uh, an important purpose, but it is certainly imperfect. And, um, you know, I, I think arbitrary energy can consumption to solve uh, the, these uh, <laughs> algorithms that are just there to be a blocker and absorb resources is about as inefficient as it gets. So at a baseline, this is just very exciting. It's a big change. Yeah, it's it's going from uh, an architecture that is designed for to be purposefully inefficient to one that uh, is very conscientious about how to how to improve the network in every possible way. So the the, the term the merge refers to the fact that in December of 2020, the Ethereum network spun up a new blockchain known as the Beacon Chain um, alongside of the existing blockchain. Uh, and so the existing one used the proof of work consensus mechanism and this new Beacon Chain relied on the proof of stake consensus mechanism. We talked a little bit about staking, but at a high level, instead of burning electricity uh, in order to secure the network, you can put up <clears throat> Ether, the asset, like ETH tokens, 
as the collateral. And if you as a, a node or a validator that's running the network attempt to introduce invalid transactions, you can be what's called slashed and have the your tokens taken away. So mm -hmm. in both cases, in both incentive, in both consensus mechanisms, there is this sort of trust collateral that you're putting up. In one case, you're burning electricity. And in another case, you're putting up your monetary resources. Um, and in both cases, this is done for the purpose of giving miners or validators incentives to follow the rules of the network and to ensure that you aren't introducing invalid transactions. The, the word staking is actually really cool here because I think you can almost summarize it like you're staking your reputation as a validator yep. on a very low level or, or on a high level, I guess you should say. What do validators do? They validate the network. They ensure that the data coming into the blocks is the, the proper data, the data we actually want to be put into the blocks and published to the blockchain. So all these validators work together in a decentralized, anonymous manner to say, hey, this is valid, this isn't. And if you sign up to be a validator, you have to put Ethereum into the, the, the pool to say, hey, I'm putting this in here, I'm staking this, and I'm saying that if you catch me messing around, doing any funny business or trying to do bad stuff, then you're gonna take some of my collateral. And that's a very powerful incentive to, to get people to play by the rules, so to speak. Um, and with proof of work, that same thing was happening, but instead you were, quote, staking your electricity and your mining or processing power attached to that physical miner that you also had to purchase to use on the network. So it's, it's staking a different sort of collateral, but you can think of that electricity cost and that internet and all of the costs associated with running a traditional proof of work miner as the collateral that is, quote, being staked um, when you're validating things on the network. So um, it's very much a back-end uh, type thing when we talk about the consensus mechanism. It's how the network decides what's valid and what isn't. That, that's really the essence of it. Yeah, exactly. And the, the term, the merge, refers to the moment when both of these different blockchains will combine. So we'll combine the full history and functionality of the existing proof of work chain with this new, more efficient security provided by the proof of stake chain. Um, and so the merge is this moment uh, currently scheduled during the week of between like September 10th and September 20th, something like that. I've heard more recent dates, um, but it's it is this moment that that a lot of people in the Ethereum ecosystem have been waiting for for a very, very long time. So it will be a moment of celebration for a lot of people within crypto. Absolutely. Um, and the number that gets tossed around 99.95, I guess, uh, amount of energy reduced going percent. from per, yeah, percent. I forgot the, the key <laughs> uh, trail there, but 99.95% reduction in power consumption going from proof of work to proof of stake. So um, obviously, this is big for the Ethereum network in general. Um, and finally, we can move on from this dialogue of Ethereum NFTs are killing the environment. No longer, ladies and gentlemen, we have finally ascended. Um, so issuance change, let's talk about how this alters kind of the structure of the economics of the network. And maybe the foundation point here is that it's expensive to pay miners. Mining, so mining hardware um, is expensive. You have to buy it up front, and then it takes a lot of power to run, and it takes a lot of processing power to run that has an opportunity cost, right? You could be using that processing power for something else. So to meet this opportunity cost, 
Right now, Ethereum issues a lot of new ETH to miners as a reward for validating blocks and securing the network. That's been really powerful to get us here. But now that we're doing proof of stake, we can achieve a similar outcome, but we don't have to pay nearly as much in newly minted Ether to get that same incentive structure. Yeah, I think the good way to think of it is um, if right now the Ethereum network utilizes the electricity of a small country, that means that the network has to issue new ETH in order to pay the electric bills of a small country. And when that, <laughs> when that is no longer the case, we're, we are anticipating something of like an 80 to 90% decrease in new issuance of ETH because we no longer need to pay all of those electric bills. So not only is it better for the environment, um, it allows for less inflation of ETH, the asset. Totally. Um, should be good for um, you know the, the overall health of the economy. I think in past episodes, we've talked about like uh, deflationary economies, disinflationary economies, the difference being deinflationary, where it's actually going down. Disinflationary is it's still inflation, but it's a decreasing amount of inflation year over year, where it's kind of trending in a downward trajectory. Um, this bodes well for kind of both those things in terms of pushing ETH to be what is the term here, Kevin? Is it the sound money thing again? Is that ultrasound what we're back to? Money. The ultrasound yeah. money. Excuse me. So I'm so where, sorry. Where this comes from, um, Bitcoiners will refer to Bitcoin as as the world's most sound money because they are um, of the mindset that uh, assets like gold that can't be adjusted, um, that are disinflationary, they decrease their inflation speed over time, are what they consider to be like the most sound money. And um, Ethereum, Ethereans, uh, what we call ourselves as people that are into Ethereum, um, are less interested in the sort of like monetary, um, I, I think a lot of the, the gold mentality comes from the sort of like libertarian Austrian economic side. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not, uh, the reason it, it's not so much what Ethereans are into, um, but the, the outcome ends up being a, a sort of like more extreme version of what Bitcoiners were touting. So if Bitcoin is what they consider to be sound money, um, then going from like, uh, disinflationary to actually deflationary, uh, is what Ethereans refer to now as ultrasound money. So it's a little tongue in cheek. <laughs> it's a little bit of a jab at Bitcoin. Um, but I think the important thing is that like this change is not being made for reasons of political or monetary idealism. It's just because it's being made because the network simply no longer requires subsidizing the security of the network with excessive monetary it's issuance. Like, it just makes the, the network more efficient. That's a great way to put it, excessive yeah. monetary issuance. Um, because it's important to go back to, we talk about Ethereum and Bitcoin like they're the same thing because they're both cryptocurrencies, but their, their stated goal is very different. Like Bitcoin is trying to be money. It wants to be gold. Like the, the Bitcoin dream is that we're, we're using Bitcoin as the store of value. And like its value is highly driven by the immutable, it is digital gold, this shit don't change. For better or for worse, it don't change. And that's part of how this thing goes. 
Um, Ethereum is trying to be a world computer. It wants to be a public good. It wants to be a resource that can create a platform for DeFi and gaming and all of these other things, basically whatever the, the netizens of the world want, and it increases the connectivity of people who have been suffering from you know, centralized, limited access to different parts of the internet or different protocols, or even just different financial tools. Um, so it's just important to keep that framing in mind always when we're talking about crypto, because in so many ways now, even as more layers get built on Ethereum, it just feels like Ethereum and Bitcoin are totally different products. Yes, they're they're built on the same general concept. Of course, Bitcoin came first and inspired Ethereum. We all know that story. Vitalik was originally a, a writer for Bitcoin magazine. That's how it all started. And then he had this light bulb and they said, this kid's fucking crazy. Get him out of here. And then he fucked off and he wrote this awesome thing and then got all these people signed on. And well, go read Lars Shin's book and, and she'll uh, really give you the, the detailed history there. Um, but now it just, it couldn't be more different. And I, I think the appeal of Ethereum needs to be, like, from an individual investor standpoint, like, you know, if there were ever financial advice coming here, it's be interested in the technology. Don't buy Ethereum for the, the speculation of the numbers. Don't buy it because you want to make money or flip it. Buy it because you believe in it as a platform, as a technology, as a public good. If that's why you're buying it, then you're a lot more in line with the ethos of why it was created um, than if you're buying it just to speculate. Um, yeah. And as I'm going through this explanation, I think one missing piece, uh, probably the last more technical piece of this episode, um, we talked about how the merge will bring about this huge reduction in issuance of ETH. Um, but that is sort of still a description of like disinflationary, right? It's like inflating at a lower speed, but to actually kick it over the edge into uh, a deflationary asset required this uh, upgrade happened a couple months ago called EIP-1559. And among other things, um, one of the components of that upgrade changed the way that transaction fees are uh, utilized in when you're actually like interacting with Ethereum. So every time you buy an NFT or use DeFi, you're paying transaction fees. And those fees previously went to the miner uh, as an additional payment on top of new ETH issuance. Um, so they they were receiving a bunch of new issuance to pay for their electric bills, but then they were also receiving uh, all of the transaction fees from all of the people that were utilizing the network. EIP-1559, instead of paying those miners, sends that uh, that ETH like into the void. It burns it, it makes it, it removes it from... Um, the total supply. So that is the sort of like uh, additional variable in here. And as network usage changes over time, one day it might be uh, very heavy bandwidth. A lot of people are using DeFi. A lot of people are using everything. That that means that that day will burn additional ETH, whereas the next day might not be as um, as high usage. So mm -hmm. there's this sort of like whatever 85, 90% reduction in ETH. But then on top of that, all of the the actual usage of the network that's occurring further pushes that into the negative territory um, most of the time. I think there's there are, are decent figures that you can look at that sort of project like if X amount of 
um, usage on the network occurs. Like if X gas fee is happening at any given time, then you've been pushed into the deflationary side. Um, but I hope that makes a little bit more sense in terms of like the difference between disinflationary and deflationary and how we're getting here. I think so. It it feels like a technicality, but I remember when you first explained it to me and it started to click and it, it is like a, a fundamentally different thing. So it may be important to um, harp on a little bit. Um, it It's dense information we're talking about here and it's a lot of things you need to understand to really get to this point. And I think once we start going through some of the myths, um, some of this stuff will also um, come into focus. Um, yeah, before we jump into lightning round, I think the the... The high level summary I would give to the merge and just overall like this switch to proof of stake um, is talking a little bit about like the value proposition of Ether, the asset. So uh, like you mentioned, it is not attempting to replace fiat the way that Bitcoin is. Um, it is just a currency for this new digital global economy world computer called Ethereum. Um, and in order to do any of the things that we've talked about in the series, like trading with decentralized exchanges or like lending and bar borrowing with automated market makers, uh, buying NFTs, using DeFi, working for a DAO, uh, in order to do any of these things, you have to spend Ether to pay transaction fees. Um, and with this introduction of this like fee burning mechanism from EIP 1559, um, that allows Ether to dip into this like deflationary uh, territory. And that means that by holding Ether, the asset, you have the ability to gain exposure to the, the economic activity that's happening on Ethereum. Um, and so finally, with the proof of, uh, proof of stake merge happening soon, new Ether issuance is cut dramatically. And we have this like potentially large like supply demand discrepancy that that could occur over the next month or so. Yeah, cer certainly much less supply. Um, and m I think most speculators are feeling like there will will also be an increase in demand to go with that reduction in supply um, because the merge is one of the biggest risk factors for Ethereum, right? If you think about institutional money, if you think about people being skeptical, like this has a risk of failing, right? And we're going to talk about what does that look like in if if you know the merge fails, does that mean Ethereum fails? You know, where are we, and how does that that adjust the roadmap? A successful merge is a huge vote of confidence in Ethereum and gets us over a potentially huge road bump and obviously a really big milestone um, that's been promised for a long time. So um, it, it's pretty fascinating. And you know, hearing you describe that summary, I always like to go back and ask myself a fundamental question in all things blockchain. Why does this need to exist? And things that have a reason to exist, that should be actually a pretty easy answer. You should be able to answer it in a way that really any non-technical person can understand. And if you have to bobble around and basically dance around the fact that you're just swapping out a Visa payment processor for a blockchain payment processor, then you probably don't have that much of an innovation. But when we talk about Ethereum and the stated goal of being this world computer, why do we need to use Ether to run the ecosystem instead of dollars? Well, because we need programmable money. We need it to be customizable. We need it to fit a lot of different needs for a lot of different products. And we need people like you to have the freedom to wrap it and then do whatever the fuck you want with it. That's kind of the beauty of Ethereum and what allows it to be a tool worth building with. You can't do that with Bitcoin, right? It's gold and that, that has another advantage in other ways, but it's not programmable money in the same way that Ethereum is. Um, so it, it has a really, really great reason to exist.
we need programmable money to build DeFi. Boom. Yeah. You got yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and DeFi and everything else that's happening uh, creates this ecosystem of money Legos where people can build off of this more open financial system. I can't utilize Robinhood or any of these other sort of like legacy financial institutions to go build on top of. In DeFi, I could build off of everything and combine them in weird ways, and it's mm -hmm. a whole different ballgame. Let's get into totally. some questions. Yeah, definitely. So um, who's start? Do I ask the first one here? Yeah, why don't you I ask think the first so. one? Okay, Bitcoiners argue that Ethereum's monetary policy is similar to fiat's because of its potentially infinite supply cap. Um, how do we address this one, big dog? Yeah, so I think the... The argument here is interesting because it, um, the Bitcoiner mentality is, yeah, again, this sort of like very gold heavy thought process. Um, a lot of people that are, that are into Bitcoin look back at the days of when the US dollar was pegged to the value of gold um, and look at that as like, that was the moment when we stopped doing that, we diverged from God and the grace of, of gold. Um, but I don't, it feels like I'm not an economist, but it feels arbitrary to tie the growth of your economy to this, the speed of this like entirely unrelated, like issuance of gold or, or issuance of new Bitcoin. Um, and it just feels kind of primitive. I think of Ethereum, uh, while it doesn't have a supply cap, this idea of it now becoming deflationary uh, you can flip this argument on its head and say that there is actually no floor cap. Like there is no minimum amount of ETH to ever exist. If we switch it from becoming inflationary to deflationary, mm. um, this could theoretically like continue to burn um, and create this sort of market dynamic where we, we, instead of worrying about not knowing what the supply cap will be, like I'm more interested in, in thinking about where the supply floor could be. Sure. Um, and I, I did write down the number here. Anytime that transaction fee uh, or gas fees are above 15 guay, which is like 15 right or now, 150. Right in, one no 15 so in while proof of work existed transaction fees above 150 guay made eth deflationary ah. but once proof of work is gone and we're past the merge transaction fees above 15 guay will cause eth to become deflationary so for context right now eth is uh it's like 15 guay gas way um the the price the amount of like eth and the uh that you're gonna have to pay to put a transaction on chain so if we were already post-merge right now, we would be like way in the deflationary. And this is a pretty like random average gotcha. uh, sample. But I think the important distinction between the Bitcoiner mentality and the Ethereum mentality is that uh, Ethereans are willing to accept that their monetary policy is not perfect and that maybe we should be willing to try to continually make improvements to it. Whereas the Bitcoiner mentality thinks that Satoshi just knew the absolutely most ideal crypto monetary policy like long before 
crypto even existed and they're just willing right. to kind of hedge all of their bets that this was the the perfect way for humanity to move forward and i don't think ethereum's ethereans really think that way i mean i i like that framing at the end it seems unlikely to me that satoshi knew the absolutely ideal crypto monetary <laughs> policy before cryptocurrencies even existed that is really good framing where you know it, what satoshi did is revolutionary it kicked off the whole thing but i i agree that it feels very, very humble to admit that we're human. We've probably made some assumptions that are a little wrong, and that's okay, but we need to, to build in a little buffer for ourselves to uh, maybe maybe adapt to that. Um, yeah. That seems fair. And I me. think, yeah, and I think the argument from the Bitcoiner side is like, okay, then who gets to make the decisions about the changes? I think uh it's like any other hard fork conversation mm -hmm. if the community rejects something that is proposed then that that change won't happen so if the ethereum foundation or vitalik or whoever it doesn't matter proposes a change to the monetary policy that people don't like that change just won't go through so right. i'm not too worried okay good all right uh, next question. So we've talked about the merge. We've talked about like the potential upside of the merge. What happens if the merge fails and what does failure even look like in this case? Yeah. So this is an interesting one. Um, there's degrees of failure, right? Um, cataclysmic failure, something on a really systemic level feels very, very low chance. Um, there's been a lot of testing. This has been on the test net for years now. Um, and a, a, like that's the upside of, of decentralized eyeballs on this thing. There's a lot of different use cases that have been applied that are catching some of these really weird, small, extraneous bugs that can maybe have some ripple effects. Um, but there are some scenarios that are that are maybe worth considering. Um, and I, I think the extension of that is like, does anyone who's bullish on Ethereum actually lose that bullishness if there is something that goes wrong with the first merge? I personally feel like there's um, a majority of people that are here right now that are you know focused on this stuff because they really believe in the long-term potential. They have that iterative kind of developer mentality where every failure is, it's Edison style. We just found one more way it doesn't work. Now, like, check it off the list and keep on going. Eventually, we're going to figure it out. Um, it just might take a little longer than planned. So I actually don't think failure is that, that awful. Um, however, there could be a scenario where, where things get really bad. If data gets lost, for example, that's no good. I don't necessarily know how that happens on the blockchain um, because in theory, we should have tons of copies of the blockchain in different states that we could roll back to if needed. But um, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on maybe those extraneous like you know, 0.1, 0.01% chance type failures where shit gets real crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was an update recently. So the the actual update that Ethereum nodes needed in order to be ready for the merge, uh, it went out where one of the clients had this bug that if you, they announced it, they said, please go update this quickly. And of course, the people that did had this bug where it deleted their database. It deleted all of their Ethereum data. And of course, it, uh, People had a chuckle and imagined a world where everyone had updated this across all clients and this bug just like wiped Ethereum out. Um, it's more, more of like a fun speculation idea because, yeah, what you said, the reality is that there are enough copies of this. There are like four main clients for a bug to exist in all of those clients and uh, 
like affect the state of the entire network all at once. Um, very, very, yeah, 0. 0.001, whatever yeah. likeliness. That's the, um, the plus side of the time element, right? You can argue like, yeah. oh, it's taken so long. Like how many trees have been destroyed in the amount of time that it's taken us to get here. And like, we should have worked faster because proof of work is evil. Okay, but the there's everything has pluses and minuses. One plus is that the more time this shit spends on the test net, the more different ways it's tested, just straight up, the more battle tested it is. That's just more quality yeah. assurance that it gets. Um, so... Yeah, we've gone through it, I think now three testnet merges and something like 10, 12 shadow mainnet forks. Like we this has this event <clears throat> will be the final of a long series of tests. Um, and yeah. I'm not too worried. Um, I'll ask the next one. So what happens to all of the the graphics cards that are currently used for mining Ethereum? Where do they go? What are people going to do with them after the merge? Yeah, this is a really good question and one that actually can start to get complex depending on which rabbit hole you want to go down. Um, the game theory gets really interesting when you think about the sunk cost that exists in all of these graphics cards that are being used for mining. They do have a lifetime, but um, you want to get as much ROI as possible per graphics card that you're using to mine with. So right now, if you're one of those miners, Ethereum is generally your best bet. It's most profitable. It's most stable. It's what people are speculating on. There's alternatives though. Like you could switch your graphics card to, you know, to Vertcoin or, you know, Ethereum Classic or one of these other chains that doesn't really make a lot of sense. You know, like Bitcoin, I think most people can at least stomach the use case for it being immutable. But these other proof of work chains that don't really have like a programming layer, it what 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 is the point of, of them at this point? You know, I think the use case for the Litecoins of the world is getting harder and harder to justify given the cost of what it takes to sustain that chain, um, especially as like Lightning Network starts to pick up for Bitcoin. So they've got cheaper transactions. There's more solutions coming to the big boys and these secondary chains don't make a lot of sense. So personally, it's like my gut wants to start to say like, all right, what's the value of Ethereum Classic? It should be pretty damn close to zero. It doesn't really do anything but it's not zero. It actually has a decent speculative value for some reason. So when this fork happens and this proof of stake switch happens, you still have all these miners that have all these GPUs running and they're immediately like, well, we got to switch to another chain. The path of least resistance is just to switch to the Ethereum proof of work fork that is undoubtedly going to exist once this split happens. And Again, you want to say like, well, why would anybody use that chain? Everyone's going to be using the proof of stake one. It's like when we say everybody, it's like most people. But if if it's secured and miners are mining on it, then it has a little bit of a network. And because it's a fork, this proof of work chain is actually going to have a clone of everything that exists on the proof of stake chain as well. That includes all NFTs, all stoke, all tokens, all stable coins. And then it's going to be into the individual products and tokens and protocols to pick the chain. So like most stable coins, right, they're going to pick the proof of stake chain because that's the one that will be Ethereum and the proof of work one will be now an alternate chain. It'll probably be like ETHP or ETHPOW or ETH, ETHW or, you know, for ETH work or something like that. So it will be the secondary chain just like ETH Classic. Um, 
I, I don't. It's it's very interesting. It, it changes the incentive structure now, where the miners will probably run out that hardware, and then the incentive to re up to secure this chain doesn't make as much sense um, because you know I I think Ethereum will still be the future over the proof of work chain, but it could open up to some very interesting situations where some exchanges have already said they will support the proof of work chain. Um, like the Ethereum token will be on the proof of work chain, and if if there's one exchange that accepts it for you to cash out, it becomes money. You can just turn it into fiat and then buy other tokens or whatever you want with it. This is what happened with Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash way back in the day. What was it, seven years ago now or something? Roger Veer says, nope, this is the future. We're changing the block. We're changing this, whatever. Consensus mechanism's different. Boom. We're the new Bitcoin. Oh, the community doesn't agree. Okay, we're Bitcoin Cash. Um, you become the alternate one. But when that split happens, as a user, you have a mirror. You have Bitcoin Cash and you have Bitcoin because it's two different projects fighting over the same history. Picture like a Y. They, they break apart at the fork, but they have that shared history between them. That will be Ethereum proof of work and Ethereum now proof of stake. We'll just call it Ethereum because it doesn't need to be denominated as proof of stake. It's just Ethereum. Um, so sorry, that was a little bit of a ramble, but what will miners do? They're going to mine this shitty ETH proof of work chain. It's going to be mostly useless, but it'll have some DeFi tools because it's a clone and it'll probably hang around for a little while and be another pump and dump. And um, th that'll be it. I mean, Dude, Luna Classic is still like doing stuff and like having proposals and having content creators shill the hell out of it. So like if that thing is still doing some of that, like you better believe ETH proof of work is at least going to exist and have a non-zero value. I think that's maybe my summary. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean that seems likely. As much as I I wish it weren't the case, I think it's important for me to separate in my mind the the sort of like game theory around this idea that the miners will probably fork the network and continue on with a proof of work version. And like, you know, some sort of like trader mentality strategy when it comes to like what you would do in that case um, and separate that conversation with like what is actually likely to survive and be like legitimate, consi like considered legitimate by the network effects of Ethereum. Yeah. Um, and I think pump and dump is 100% the right mentality with this. Like if, if you are a trader and you are interested in like, you know, preparing yourself for this potential fork, that's that's one conversation. Um, but I, I strongly encourage people that are not speculative to to go play that game because I, I, I know I'm not personally a trader um, and it's like I, I'm kind of like you said, as an Ethereum, I'm here for the long run and. Uh, this proof of work potential network is definitely going to be a pump and dump if it exists. Well, when it exists, probably. Yeah, um, I, I've I, heard of. Okay, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Um, no, I, I think it is it is also um, important to recognize that this does kind of suck for users where it opens up this attack vector for charlatans. You know, there's going to be bored apes now on proof of stake and proof of work. And I guarantee it's a non-zero number of somebody that's going to buy a proof of work NFT thinking that it's the official yeah. one and it's actually just now a shitty knockoff. Um, that is inherently confusing and not a good user experience for these immutable assets to be cloned like that it's kind of inevitable and it's you know it's a greater thing in terms of forking it's it's not specific to any one nft project of course but um i just wanted to throw that out there of you know be careful in the wake also be careful with exchanges 
get your tokens off of exchanges. Um, they, they have all sorts of weird parameters when it comes to forks. Not your keys, not your tokens. This is a really good time to have tokens on your actual wallets. Pull them out of protocols, secure your shit, and then you can always put it back into other places. But this is a really time to bat, really good time to batten down the hatches and not trust other exchanges with your money because if they screw up or you know something goes wrong with the merge we've seen what happens in the worst case they start freezing withdrawals they well they don't really freeze deposits very often but you know freezing withdrawals is a big deal so i just wanted to throw that psa out there this is a really important time to just think about not your keys not your tokens like these are the moments where it really matters yeah and this actually leads pretty well into the next question if you wanted to ask that. yeah um yeah, do we have to upgrade our wallets? Uh, I've heard like ETH 2.0 thrown around as nomenclature. Do we have to do anything on the user side? Yeah, so the quick answer is no, no upgrade on the user side. Um, and for history, the concept of Ethereum 2.0, originally the Ethereum Foundation used that as a reference to this proof of stake chain, but eventually realized that it sets up this bad nomenclature around um, people thinking this way of like, this is a, some sort of an upgrade that they need to do. The reality is, it's just the same network. It's Ethereum and it's having some updates occur. Um, mm -hmm. And that's all, all in the back end that users won't be affected by. So people stopped using this concept of ETH 2.0. I know if you go on Coinbase and try to, um, they, they allow you to stake ETH in the beacon chain and they call it ETH 2, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, kind of not great to continue using that name, but no need to update, everything functions normally. The point of the, the exact minute of the merge, the thing that will occur is there will be a block that was secured by the proof of work chain, and then the next block is that's secured by the proof of stake chain. And the users don't care and everything continues normally. Nothing should pause or, or cause any issue. That's the idea. Um, now to continue on with what you were saying, like there is this sort of trader mentality of, what could you do to prepare for this potential of a proof of work fork um, when previous uh, Bitcoin hard forks have occurred? If you had your money on an exchange, the exchange is really holding the actual private keys for that crypto. And so they have the ability to have the cloned tokens that exist on the new network. And it's unlikely that they're going to go out of their way to go send those tokens to their uh, the, the customers that are actually using it. So the idea here is that if you are holding your own private keys on chain, um, then you will get all of the clones of all of the tokens that uh, are copied over to this proof of work chain. And then if you decided you wanted to just dump those tokens or whatever you want to yeah. do with them, you have the ability to do that. It, it's that and also in combination with the, this recent bear market, I think a lot of us have realized exchanges have gone crazy with marketing and acting like their custody is better than your custody. And if you read the fine print, oftentimes when exchanges start to run out of capital and they need to liquidate stuff, you get liquidated before they do. So when, when the, the shit hits the fan and the exchange goes under, your bags get taken before the exchange's bags get taken in a lot of cases. So it's yeah. all great when everything's working fine and it's all good. But when big changes like this happen, if there's even a chance that an exchange is close to being insolvent and something gets triggered here because there's huge volatility one way or the other with a successful merge or an unsuccessful merge, um, 
it's just a time where I would say be careful. And within this year, we've seen moments where multiple exchanges have had to freeze withdrawals. And that's I that's never happened to me, and I don't want that to ever happen to me. That's got to be a scary situation where money you need to pay for life is frozen arbitrarily by an exchange. It actually happened to me with PayPal when they shut down my account. It wasn't life-changing money, but it was enough that I was like, Am I going to get this back? Like, I, I kind of need this, guys. You know? Um, anyway. Yeah. So let's knock through a couple of big lightning questions here. I'll, I'll kind of uh, throw them at you, and you can answer as fast as you want. This is the Mythbuster sure. section. So we've got um, just some common myths here, I, I think, that are worth dissecting. Um, gas fees. Does the merge reduce gas fees on the network? Will it be cheaper for me to buy my NFTs, Kevin? No. This has nothing to do with reducing gas fees. This uh, tees up the network for future upgrades to that will reduce gas fees, but this has nothing to do with reducing gas fees. Okay. How about sharding? Does this include any of the sharding um, that's a key part of scaling that Vitalik has talked about a little bit? How does the merge affect sharding? Yeah, that's another no. So sharding will occur in a future upgrade and among other things be really helpful for reducing gas fees, but that is not part of the merge. Gotcha. Does the merge scale Ethereum? We hear stuff like TPS transactions per second. Do Can we like handle games on mainnet now that the merge is coming? Yeah, I mean, this falls into a similar bucket. I think scaling is a really broad concept. Um, but again, this is more so teeing it up for future upgrades to scale the network. This one is tricky because That's I often no. hear people say like, well, the, the merge makes Ethereum more efficient. It's like, well, yes, but we have to, to narrow in on what part are we talking about when we say more efficient. It makes specifically the consensus mechanism 99.95% more efficient in terms of the amount of power it burns. So yes, true statement. It does not, however, fundamentally, fundamentally change the quote unquote processing power of the blockchain. Um, it does not increase the transactions per second. It does not allow it to inherently scale from like a, wow, there's so many people doing transactions right now. Um, like you said, it doesn't change gas fees. User demand is still user demand. So just important to delineate when we talk about efficiency, what part is more efficient? And this is just purely in the consensus side. Um, so I already answered the next question about faster transactions, no faster transactions. What about staked ETH? I've seen a lot of people talk about being able to withdraw staked ETH if you're currently um, trying to secure the network. Yeah, so for context, in order to stake in the Ethereum beacon chain, you need to uh, run a node with 32 ETH. There are liquid staking options that we talked about in the, in the staking episode that you can stake with way less. Um, like Coinbase, for example. Um, but the ability to withdraw staked ETH comes later. Uh, so if you are running a node where you are have your 32 ETH locked in there, you won't be able to withdraw at the moment of the merge. This was a deliberate decision to increase the speed at which the merge will occur to kind of like pull that timeline forward mm. by not introducing this additional complexity. So that complexity and the withdrawing ability will come at another upgrade. It'll probably be the most... Uh, the, the, the update that follows the merge, uh, next. So probably in the months kind of time frame. hopefully not much longer. So, and on that note, um, again, really just defining terms here. What is a node? A node is like that super category that encompasses a number of things. Not all nodes require 32 ETH to operate. The validators that actually validate the blocks do, but you can also yeah. just run a node that is free, no ETH, that just is kind of like a copy of the blockchain that 
it's there, it's a node, it's, it's a data point, but it, it's, it's a much different from a validator. So when, when we say node, you have to just delineate a little bit. What type of node are we talking about? Uh, oh, <laughs> words mean yeah. something, as it turns out, Kevin. Funny how that works. Um, yeah, it gets confusing, but go ahead. Yeah, so last couple here. Downtime. Will there be any downtime on the chain? There is not any planned downtime. Of course, this gets into the, the potential failure scenarios. If something were to occur uh, where there was a bug in a client, it, it would have to be pretty a pretty big deal. Like one of the main points of decentralization with Ethereum that is a much better improvement over Bitcoin. Bitcoin has a single set of code, a single client that can run the network. And so when there's a bug in Bitcoin, there's a bug in Bitcoin where mm -hmm. Ethereum has like four or five different uh, sets of code in different programming languages that are all different versions of the Ethereum spec. So you have four different clients that are all running like different versions of the code. And so for there to be an issue and cause downtime, it would likely need to be a bug that exists across all versions of the, mm. of the client code or some like, you know, vast majority of the network where there's like sort of un uh, like unsyncing occurs and people are like, okay, this is going to get complicated. Let's just pause the chain and figure out what's happening. Right. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. But right now there is no planned downtime. Okay. And then a uh, specific date. Do we know when this is going to happen exactly? Can I set my alarm clock? No, we don't. So the way, uh, because a blockchain is not totally aware of our human conception of time, yeah, it knows it it can have a sense like every individual node, every client that runs the code has the computer clock time. But instead of having to sync the entire um, globe around a like regular clock, human clock time, uh, we have we are going off of the total terminal difficulty, which means um, the total amount of hashing power that has been accrued over the network. So how much mining has occurred over the network? We picked this, I forget what the Ethereum Foundation picked, but it was like this very uh, long number of like a total terminal difficulty. And that is currently estimated, assuming that like roughly the same amount of mining occurs between now and it's like the second week of September, um, mm -hmm. then it is slated for around that time. But it's there's wiggle room based on how much mining occurs between I, then and I now. I think September 15th is like a rough, rough sort of estimate, give or take. Like sometime in that like, you know, 10 to 20 range, I think is what people are, are looking at. Uh, I've seen some people predicting September 16th, but uh, we'll see. That's that's part of the fun. So, all right, very last question here, bud. Are you more excited or are you more nervous for the merge? Where, where, where's like the, the butthole dilation right now? Are, are, we, are, we par are we puckered? Are we like, oh, are, we, are you going to be like tuned in that day? Like, please don't fail. Please don't fail. Or are you sitting here just like uh, cool as a cucumber? I know we're good. This thing's going to work. This is the future, and we have arrived. I'm curious where you're at on that vast spectrum. Yeah, I'd say as a software engineer, I'm acutely aware of the many different like edge cases and ways that things can just fail without you anticipating them. So I'm not 100%, but I would say I'm like... 5% uh, puckered and like 95% just excited okay. that this is finally happening. That's pretty um, good. How about yourself? 
that's yeah. that's very confident. I I think I'm pretty pretty comparable threshold. Um, I think I I'm a little more cynical. I'm probably more in the the ninety ten. Um, I don't sure. really know why. Maybe even down to like eighty twenty. I think I'm sure. just nervous about um, ambiguity and complexity. I think maybe working on the axis side of the spectrum, I've become a little more aware of how big the gap is to educate users. And we have this super wide spectrum of crazy advanced programmers that are like, I'm gonna buy an ape, claim the land, and then sell the ape back all on a flash loan on the same block. Try and stop me, motherfuckers. And then you've got people that are like, okay, I got my Coinbase wallet. Um, now where do I do things? You know, so like it's it's insane. And Axie is the exact same way. We have crazy advanced users that are like scraping all of our data, and then we have these like completely. I've never had a bank account before. I I barely have really played games before, but I'm here and I'm enjoying myself and I'm trying to learn as quickly as I can. Um, this is such a a highly complex thing. I've seen so much misinformation on Twitter and social medias and other podcasts. That just scares me a little bit, and I really hope that people don't get taken advantage of en masse as a result of just being confused or being on the wrong chain or just whatever else, man. You know, I just, I feel for users more so than ever before. As much as I want to be a libertarian at heart and be like, self-reliance, you got to take care of yourself. It's hard to know what's real. And I'm really empathetic of the user that comes in and can't tell fact from fiction because you're just blasted with information. And like 99% of people in this space are trying to sell you something. Even if they say they're not trying to sell you something, they, they really are. And they're skewing their presentation to, to prime you for that sale or potential sale. So um, I'm, I'm maybe a little, a little more jaded. And I don't really understand the technical side as well as you do. So maybe that's where a little bit of my fear and uncertainty comes from. But... I don't have as much doubt. I'm just F you on this one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, it's better to be on the cautious side and be like pleasantly surprised than to be overly optimistic. I think that's a good mentality. I think your point about the increased likelihood of scams occurring is a really, really important one. I think the best thing you could do if you're just sort of watching this space and unsure what to do, just do nothing. Like just watch <laughs> and have a good time. Don't. <laughs> do it's just like don't try and be creative don't try to like arbitrage uh things if if you don't want <laughs> that increased risk the best thing you could just do is like do less <laughs> don't don't try and is this where we go back to the crazy. easy bake sponsorship set it and forget it baby <laughs> the easy bake yes, oven that's Yes, I would love to get an Easy Bake sponsor. <laughs> there you go, dude. Uh, the, the 80s had it right, uh, full circle. Um, of course, never financial advice here, folks. Uh, very educational stuff. If you made it this far, uh, pat yourself on the back. This is really important, contemporary, heavy stuff. We certainly appreciate you joining on this New Blocks journey. For those of you watching this in the future post-merge, hopefully we got it right. This will be an interesting one to revisit in six months or so, Kevin. Um, It'll be funny to see if we were overly optimistic or overly cynical or somewhere in between. But really exciting times ahead. And uh, I, I don't know the proper word in the English vocabulary to express the magnitude of this milestone. And uh, for folks that have been here you know, for half a decade or more, this is, this is it, dude. This is seriously a, a giant moment where I don't think Vitalik drinks, but uh, he should really pop open a bottle of, uh, of Sean Don on this one, dude. That's, this is big. Yep. This is really big. Absolutely. This is this is the big one. Humunga Dunga. This is yeah. what we've all been waiting for. 
<laughs> yep, that's it. So, all right, folks, we'll catch you next time. Uh, the New Blocks is back. I'm going to be on the road coming up for AxiCon here pretty quick. We'll see if we can record at least one episode on the road. But if not, we'll be back in slightly more regular intervals, uh, certainly through, uh, throughout the rest of the year. Kevin, always a pleasure, my friend. Um, can't wait to see what happens here. Here's to a successful post-merge episode analyzing all of the things that we just got completely right. Cheers. Thank you.